Welcome to Snap Sessions, a podcast that looks at international artists and their creative pursuits, as well as interesting articles and broadcasts across the political spectrum. My name is Doug Nunn. I'm joined by voiceover colossus Ken Krause, by our behind-the-scenes techmeister Marshall Brown, and by our artist of the show, folk singer-songwriter Emily Jane White, as well as a salute to the storied 1980s Canadian comedy troupe SCTV. Support for Snap Sessions is brought to you by listeners who contribute generously at our link, patreon.com forward slash snap sessions, or through the link in the Snap Sessions website, thesnapsessions.com, and also the link in our show notes. Thanks to our Snappus Maximus contributors, Ron Hochsprung and Rick and Henny Newman, and to our supportive snappers, Peter and Sheila Jowers, Dominie Jowers and John Bird, Gabriel Geiger, and Christine Samus. Tired of ordinary television? Don't touch that dial. SCTV is now on the air. The Power of Silly. A salute to SCTV. We have not always lived up to the high-quality television of primetime. A primetime quality world that consists of wise-cracking hand puppets from outer space and wise-cracking teenagers and wise-cracking elderly women and Wise-cracking cops, wise-cracking bartenders, wise-cracking waitresses. Uh, a quality world where investigative journalism consists of rooting through Al Capone's basement. A quality primetime world where old game shows, at least ten years old, are recycled as new, and they're passed off as being good. Uh, a world where, wait a minute, wait a minute. I can give you that same kind of stuff and give it to you for half price and do it just as badly. What do you say, Mr. Chairman? I think television deserves us as much as we deserve television. That was Second City TV's cheap, tyrannical owner and president, Guy Caballero. Longtime wheelchair user to earn respect, well, actually sympathy, ostensibly addressing a parliamentary committee looking into SCTV's shady operations. Caballero is defending his network from charges of corruption. And this is one of the few times Caballero actually made sense. Powered by razor-sharp parodies, solid impressions, and first-class comedy ensemble acting, Second City TV was a Canadian television sketch comedy program that ran irregularly between 1976 and and 1984. SCTV was the brainchild of Second City Toronto and, to a lesser extent, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. A bit like Saturday Night Live, Live from New York, it's Saturday Night! Crossed with Monty Python, Monty Python's a flying circus! A typical episode was broadcast from the fictional town of Mellonville somewhere in Canada. After a few years, Mellonville's geography was changed to somewhere in the USA. Each broadcast was a collection of shows supposedly broadcast from SCTV on any given day, and all of them were always ridiculous. SCTV's origins remain somewhat shrouded in mystery. Around 1976, Toronto's Second City Improv Theatre producers, Bernard Solins, Andrew Alexander, and Sheldon Patinkin, were keen to get Second City comedy on TV. 
They rounded up some of their stars, starting with John Candy, Joe Flaherty, Dave Thomas, and Eugene Levy. To this mixture, they folded in Chicago's Harold Ramis and then Andrea Martin and Catherine O'Hara, all as writer-performers. For season three, Rick Moranis, a veteran Canadian DJ, was added. And in season four, the wonderfully oddball Martin Short became a cast member, although they sometimes moved in and out of the group. SCTV's pool of talent was extremely impressive. (gasps) The cast was composed of people who were adept at celebrity impressions, from famous movie stars to obscure politicians to game show hosts. Like Saturday Night Live, actors were expected to be able to portray well-known people, but even by this measure, SCTV's performers were extraordinary mimics. According to Wikipedia... The 11 people who were show regulars were asked to imitate more than two dozen people on average over the course of their tenure on the show. A quick review shows that Joe Flaherty did 40 different celebrities, from Charlton Heston to Menachem Begin. Andrea Martin did 28, from Joan Baez to Sophia Loren to Mother Teresa. Rick Moranis did 29, from Woody Allen to Ringo Starr to Mel Torme. And Catherine O'Hara did 26, from Catherine Hepburn to Meryl Streep. SCTV built their show on off-the-wall comic premises like Celebrity Blow-Up, where different popular personalities exploded, or Battle of the PBS Stars, where Mr. Rogers was matched in a fight with Julia Child, and William F. Buckley went toe-to-toe with astronomer Carl Sagan. Then there was Monster Chiller Horror Theater, a series of over-the-top horror takeoffs narrated by Joe Flaherty's Count Floyd, a vampire with an unusual tendency to howl like a wolf. <laughs> Count Floyd was scared of anything truly frightening and ended up introducing films like Dr. Tongue's 3D House of Stewardesses and Tip O'Neill's 3D House of Representatives. The gang also did superb parodies of showbiz talk shows like The Sammy Maudlin Show, where they caricatured Sammy Davis Jr. as a host with Ed McMahon-type sidekicks and introduced stand-up comic Bobby Bittman, played by Eugene Levy. Here, Bittman enters as Julius Caesar in a takeoff on Shakespeare's play. Conspirators, listen. Caesar and his armies have crossed the Rubicon. Aye, and he will have the Senate make him a god. Let our daggers do the deed. Our words he will not heed. Soft, he approaches. Hey! Hey! very much for that marvelous reception. I particularly want to thank my supporters over there in the Caesarean section. I think they're marvelous, these guys. I don't know. You know, you Romans are so wacky. First you name a salad after me, then you make me emperor. I don't know what's going on here. I just... Caesar! Oh, boy. Beware the eyes of March! And, sweetheart, beware of mirrors, because with a face like that, the reflection could be fatal, I'm afraid. <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't recognize your wife without her leash. (laughs) Pluto! Hey, Pluto, my dear friend, I love this guy. We go back, Pluto and I. Ah, you're looking good. Thank you, Pluto and his wife, they're so fat. When they go to a restaurant, they don't ask for a menu. They ask for an estimate. (laughs) Crossing and bending genres was something SCTV, like Monty Python before them, excelled at. 
One of our favorite episodes was when SCTV, through some sort of transmission glitch, was taken over by Soviet television. The result was an evening of mid-Cold War Soviet TV shows like Today is Moscow, Upo Skrabelnik, and Hey Georgie, everybody's favorite Cossack. 3CP1, Russian television. Hey Georgie! He's coming to your town, hey, Jorge. He never wears a frown, hey, Jorge. He's as happy as can be, cause all of Russia is Jorge's family. Hey, Jorge! Yes, it's Jorge, everybody's favorite Cossack. What a fellow. If he is not helping somebody, he is helping somebody else. How will I know what is wrong? Jorge! Oh no! Uzbeks have drunk my battery fluid! I knew this would happen! Thanks, Jorge! You are a battle accident! Made my life a living hell! Shit! Is that for your pig? You have never brought some tea in your life! Lies! Sometimes I wonder why I ever married you! Oh, of course! To have sex! I forgot! Thank you, Jorge! Another hilarious Cold War takeoff was a game show called What Fits Into Russia, where the host places different countries on a map of the Soviet Union to show how small they are in comparison with the USSR. Hello, people! Welcome to What Fits Into Russia! Yesterday, the last country we put in place was Angola. And look! With these other countries, not even half filling Mother Russia because of its enormous size. And look at rest of the world. <laughs> He's almost gone. Yesterday, we exposed some Mississippi myths. And for today's lesson to the Americans about the incredible size superiority of the Soviets, let's put the Longhorn anti-Leninists of Texas in their place. So long, Lone Star State. <laughs> You look like a tiny star set against the vast, colossal sky of Mother Russia. <laughs> Perhaps the most wackily Cold War of all was the parody of the tense Cold War drama Failsafe, which comes at the end of the Russian station SCTV takeover. The President of the United States, played by Guy Caballero, is on the red phone with the Soviet Premier, who is speaking silly Russian gibberish. President. Yes, I'm still here. Well, no, I, I don't know anything about a satellite heading toward Moscow. No. Well, you can shoot it down. You've got my permission without any fear of reprisal from us. What do you mean it's too small? All right. Here's what to expect. You'll hear a high-pitched whine. No, that won't be your phone, Melton. That'll be the sound of Red Rooster as he screams while he's hidden smack into Red Square. Yeah. Yes, I know my wife's in New York. Well, to can play that game, Mr. Premier. I could turn your country into a holiday sauce if I wanted to. It's a sauce we put on eggs. You might have take it then that you're ordering a strike. Well, so be it. 
One of SCTV's specialties was musical parodies, with cast members who were able to imitate a variety of performers' styles. Martin Short did a great version of Jerry Lewis singing Bob Dylan's greatest hits, and Rick Moranis did a spot on Mel Torme. Then there was Five Neat Guys, a sort of parody of 1950s men's white bread pop groups like The Four Freshmen. It's December the 1st, and I'm starting to hurt, cause I can't get a date for New Year's. 20 years later, the neatest sound of the 50s, from the neatest guys of the 50s, come back to life in a spectacular new album. Salad sandwiches. Fifty of the neatest hits from five of the neatest guys. Yes, it's the five neat guys' neatest hits. Remember, let's have a party in my rec room. Let's have a party in my rec room. And on the same album, I won't take just any girl around. Cause Patsy has the largest press in town. Has the largest breasts in town. You'll also hear, Should I kiss her goodnight? My mom framed my high school diploma. Slow dance, anyone? And she does it. Does it, she does it. The whole town says she does it. You'll also hear, My dad's car, let's have a party in my rec room. Who put the pennies in my loafers? And I'm the goof in the classroom. songs from five of the world's neatest guys. It's K-Tel's Five Neat Guys Neatest Hits. Five thugs pulled my tie from my collar, so don't step on my clip-on tie. It's Five Neat Guys Neatest Hits. Just step around that clip-on tie. Record 895, Tapered Set 15.95. One of my favorite SCTV acts was the Schmengies. Members of the polka group The Happy Wanderers from the fictional Eastern European country of Lutonia. They were featured leading the Wanderers on a special episode of SCTV and had breakout success in the HBO special The Last Polka, a parody of Martin Scorsese's documentary of the band's final concert, The Last Waltz. Here are the Schmangies doing their hit, Cabbage Rolls and Coffee, on David Letterman's show in 1986. After a 20-year career, unparalleled in the polka field, my next guests have retired. A documentary film of their legendary final concert called The Last Polka has its world premiere on HBO March 14th. Here performing now, the Cabbage Rolls and Coffee Polka are Yash and Stan Schmengi. The Schmengi
The most popular sketch in the SCTV arsenal ended up being something seen as a throwaway, the Great White North, with Moranis and Thomas playing Doug and Bob McKenzie, two Canadian beer-drinking hosers. The Great White North was initially created in response to a demand from the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation that the show include at least two minutes of identifiably Canadian content in every episode. This two-minute stipulation was due to the fact that the American version of the show was two minutes shorter than the Canadian version to allow for more commercials. Doug and Bob became a huge hit, veritable gods of Canadian culture, spawning a Doug and Bob film in 1983 titled Strange Brew and helping to popularize the stereotypical Canadian trait of adding A to the end of sentences. Okay, good day. Welcome to the Great White North. Go. Go again. Beautiful. Okay, good day. Welcome to the Great White North. I'm Bob McKenzie. This is my brother, Doug. How's it going, eh? And whoa, you, did you hear about... What? Well, you can tell. Okay, you hear about the guy who, like, uh, was opening a beer, eh, and, like, went to drink and then did the stupid thing of looking in the bottle and, whoa, there's a mouse in his bottle, eh? Real, real, real mouse. Well, I guess it, it was dead, right? Drowned from yeah. beer. And drunk, too. Drowned like it, happy, it died too. It had from, a smile on its face, eh? It died he from drunk driving in the bottle. But you know what the guy got? Tell him. A whole case of beer. Right. So our topic today is how to stuff a mouse into a beer bottle without uh, without breaking it. The its, bottle. Its bones. Right. So that they'll look at it and give you a case and not think you hose them by uh, by deliberately stuffing one in, eh? It's like shipbuilding in a bottle, okay? Right. And like the thing to remember is let's say you get, okay, let's say you get a six pack, right? Yeah. Six mice, right? Six mice. Okay. You get a case for each beer bottle with a mouse. So a case of two, four, right? A square for like times six? What's six times 24? Jeez, I don't know. I don't have my calculator, eh? Okay, so I, I Second City TV had an excellent ensemble and many of them moved on to movie careers. John Candy had a successful film career before dying of a heart attack in 1994 at age 43. Rick Moranis and Martin Short also went on to many starring roles in films. Catherine O'Hara and Eugene Levy have continued working in a variety of film and TV roles, often taking on quirky roles in artier films. Especially memorable was their turn as Mitch and Mickey, a folk-singing couple in A Mighty Wind, and as the parents of the Rose family in the award-winning TV series Schitt's Creek. Dave Thomas and Andrea Martin have also worked as actors, writers, and voice artists in films and television. After a long career in television, Joe Flaherty moved to academia and spent recent years teaching comedy writing at Humber College. So much marvelously silly talent. Second City joins Monty Python and Saturday Night Live in the pantheon of most inspiring comedy companies. Let's have SCTV's Rick Moranis as Mel Torme sign off this segment singing the Star Spangled Banner. SCTV now signs off with Mel Torme. Oh, say, can you see by the dawn's early? Pardon me, boy, is this a Chattanooga choo-choo? I've got my share. It's just travel to spare. Oh, once I built a railroad, made it run, kept it running on time, running on time. Once I built a railroad, now it's done. Brother, can you spare a brother? Can you spare a rocket's red glare? The bombs bursting in air. Gay 
we've proved through the night that our flag was still tall and ten. And yes, the girl from Ipanema goes walking, and when she's walking, our flag was still there. Oh, say, does that star-spangled babadabadanner yet wave for the land of the Freepers, creepers, where'd you get those peepers? Freepers, creepers, where'd you get that home of the most beautiful girl in the world? Picks my tie out, cheats my can. Thanks for listening to Snap Sessions. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to us on Patreon. We depend on the support of listeners like you. Everybody's got a little hole in the middle Everybody does a little dance with the devil And you know I'm even there I'm here with Emily Jane White, who uh, grew up on the Mendocino coast of Northern California. Emily is a former student of mine, actually. Uh, She was in seventh grade math class, and she was also in the Improv Comedy Club at Mendocino Middle School, which I coached. It's great to have you here, Emily. Thank you, Doug. Thanks for having me. You had a North Coast childhood, which is kind of a classic thing. Tell us about growing up on the North Coast. And also, were you a musical kid back then? Uh, Yeah, I started playing piano around preschool, actually. Of course, I can reference all of these locations because you know where they are. (laughs) I went to Rainbow Preschool, which is, you know, located right in the Presbyterian Church building. I remember doing piano lessons. I guess I was like five or so. And I even did a little recital in the big hall there. So I started piano really young and continued on from there. Now, there's a lot on your albums. There's a lot of you playing piano, but I guess your main instrument is guitar now. Did you Mm -hmm. also play guitar back then? Were you uh, doing that in school as well? So I didn't pick up the guitar until about 12, 13. My dad plays guitar. And I remember listening to a song and he was like, oh, that that song is really easy. It's only four chords. And he figured it out by ear. I was like, wow, how did you do that? And then he taught me the chords and then that was that. I started playing guitar from there. You also, you went to the Mendocino Community High School, which was kind of our hip alternative. It's alternative, but it's also a public school. So it's within the public school system, but it produces a lot of young artists. And your your mom was a special ed teacher mm-hmm. who is a wonderful person, Kathy. I had the good fortune of working with her a couple of different times. Now, did you ever feel drawn to education or did you early on know that you might want to be an artist? This is a question I always want to ask our artists. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you think of yourself like, I want to, I really want to do this or did you have any idea? Yeah, that's a, it's a good question. Most endeavors that I've pursued in the arts have sort of happened more organically. When I explain my process, people are like, oh, you had some foresight, but nothing is really cognitively laid out or planned. But I will say, if you look back, retrospectively, there is some interesting kind of linear logic to it, which is that when I was at the Mendocino Community High School, there were ways to fulfill credits through doing extracurricular activities and that kind of thing. And I focused a lot on piano 
and then eventually on piano and singing and songwriting. And my 200 hour senior project to complete my studies at the community school was actually singing, piano and songwriting. And that's when I started really. I just decided to take a leap. You know, I had been studying piano, but I hadn't really been singing and I hadn't really been songwriting. I mean, I look back to my approaches to songwriting. I don't have like a single song necessarily that I wrote from that time period that I could recall, but it actually is what I've ended up doing with my life. (laughs) To answer your question about education, I definitely have been sort of a lifelong learner in a lot of ways. And I feel like what I've been able to do as an artist, which I'm really grateful for the medium of art making is that I can take a lot of different things and different experiences and different things that I've learned and kind of merge them together in an interdisciplinary way and sort of distill that down into my work. And you know, I haven't really found any kind of conventional structure that has given me a degree in that per se. Well, you went on from there, you went on to UC Santa Cruz, also kind of has a reputation as an alternative public education sphere. You studied American studies and gender studies there. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that you you thought about going on to grad school. I feel like when I listen to your music that gender studies is definitely influenced. And also, I would say American studies. Talk about your time at UC Santa Cruz and how it influenced your young songwriting career at that point. So once again, it was kind of that interdisciplinary experience in the sense that I went in to get my BA with hopefully finding a very solid sense of direction. And what happened is that I got a very spread out liberal arts education, but I started in women's studies and then I switched over to the American studies department. Unfortunately, the department is no longer, but it was in fact an interdisciplinary program and you could do a gender studies pathway within that program. So I was also part of the last year to opt out of grades. Um, I took only narrative evaluations and that hasn't been a problem for me. I didn't, you know, if I had gone on and actually applied to grad school, then maybe they would have wanted something uh, more concrete in that direction. But I didn't have any grades, which was really interesting. (laughs) I think not having grades took the pressure off in a way um, and allowed me a little bit more freedom and less stress to learn and to fully inhabit a learning style that was more suited to me. Mm-hmm. Then again, I don't really know. But um, but yeah, my experience there was wonderful. And I took a lot of classes in women's studies, but um, the American Studies Department was particularly conducive to my education as a developing songwriter because I, you know, we read a lot of like science fiction and literature and tied it into American politics and history and culture. And, you know, as a folk artist, it actually makes a lot of sense that I went that direction. So I I definitely feel like my songwriting is very much informed by my education in that way. I also noticed you were in a lot of bands um, during this time period. Mm -hmm. I read, you know, this is classic, the Smocks, Sweated Out, (laughs) The Vane, and the Diamond Star Halos. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I I imagine some of them were, were sort of, you know, small bands, but there's recorded stuff. The Diamond Star Halos have some good tunes. I really liked listening to that. The reason I ask this question is it's the same thing. Like I do a lot of improv comedy over the years. Mm -hmm. Know how you connect with people to become like a member of a group. And the same must be true of a singer, of a folk artist. Tell us how you connected with some of the bands and some of the work you did 
as a, during that student era and a little bit after it? Well, there were a lot of bands. This was all very right before social media took off. And so the communities that had formed in Santa Cruz at the time between college students were very much still like a word of mouth. And you you found out about concerts and shows through flyers and things like that, like the old school mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> method. Sure. You know, looking back, I see that there was kind of this really amazing thing happening which is there were a lot of house concerts at the time uh, which were really intimate and there were just a lot of people making all different kinds of music nobody was really classically trained or heavily like technically skilled in one direction or the other it was sort of more uh, embodying like a punk ethos like if you want to do something you just do it you don't worry about whether you're doing it right and so that was really new to me. Growing up in Mendocino, being so isolated, it's like all I had was really exposure to CDs and vinyl I could buy or that were belonged to my parents. There was no internet or there was really mainstream music through MTV and things like that. So I, I was totally disconnected. I didn't, you know, a lot of my friends at Santa Cruz had more of like a suburban or urban upbringing so they were exposed to a lot more different forms of like musical subcultures it's just funny because I moved to Santa Cruz and I was like wow the big city and then I had friends there who were from big cities and were like what is up with this town it's so small (laughs) Um, but yeah it was a really amazing time and I think that my experience of attending shows and listening to other people's music and seeing other people perform in these small kind of intimate either venues or coffee houses or house shows that also really informed my direction as a songwriter it looks to me like the diamond star halos you did the most work with them did you actually tour with that band or with any of the others that band was really the first band i was in where i was the songwriter And then my friend Jillian, who is also my roommate in college, and now she actually lives two blocks from me, um, she played drums. And then my friend Brooke, who is a professor of women's studies now, um, was a really good friend of mine. She sang harmonies. Mm -hmm. So we formed that trio and we played a lot of concerts in Santa Cruz. But unfortunately, we sort of disbanded shortly after we graduated. Brooke got pregnant and Jillian moved to the city and then I ended up going to France after that. So we re- we officially released that EP online a couple of months ago and oh. have, have been talking about potentially playing a little bit together again. I like the music. Yeah. I mean, I, I thought when I, I the, what I've heard, I thought, you know, you yeah. guys should definitely make sure it was i clicked on it and i thought oh yeah, i listened yeah. to it a couple of times so so there was three three yes. women in the band yeah. then basically so see, there you are at santa cruz and you're leaving you're you're getting your bachelor's degree you've just made this decision you're going to move up to san francisco and begin performing as emily jane white what were the first solo gigs like and tell us about this transformation and building up enough confidence because being part of comedy groups when you go on stage as a group that's one thing when you go on stage by yourself to be a stand-up, that's quite a different thing. <laughs> Tell us about this transformation for you, Emily. So I was living in Santa Cruz, and then I ended up going and visiting um, France for a little bit. Actually, I played as sort of the Diamond Star Halos over in France, and I had a couple other girlfriends like fill in the harmonies, and one played drums, and then there was another friend who played bass for a little bit. So 
I performed in France as the Diamond Star Halos, but not the original group. And then I also played some concerts solo there. And then I came back and I lived actually up in Mendocino for a little while to save up money to move back to France. And that's when I studied French and, and, and also continued to play music, kind of an underground music scene there. And then it was after that that I moved to San Francisco and um, started performing solo. But yeah, it, you know, performing has never been my strongest area. It's something that uh, my music is so exposed in a lot of ways. I mean, I've played hundreds of concerts and there are times where I still feel like, wow, I feel like <laughs> the amount of anxiety that's happening in my body. It's like you would have never known that I'd played hundreds of concerts. But, but I think that's part of what I have to offer. So I usually, you know, at this point in my career, I embrace that. I actually played with a lot of other musicians. I had like a full band for those couple years when I was started performing solo. And that really helped. And sometimes I play as a duo or a trio, or we'd have the full band. I even did a tour one time with six people on stage. So, you know, I would play solo. I've gotten much better at performing solo. The, the most challenging shows I think I've ever played are when they're like, you have 30 minutes and I only can play, for example, guitar because I haven't, there's no piano there. I haven't been able to bring my piano. And capturing an audience for 30 minutes while playing just solo acoustic guitar, that's doable. But anything over that, it's kind of like asking a lot of people, yeah. um, unless you're a really good storyteller, <laughs> which I'm not really. So Yeah, and the classic one is to tell the stories in between while you're tuning your guitar. Yes. You mentioned uh, before we go to France, because I definitely want to talk about that. Yeah. Um, you mentioned you, you call it being exposed. Do you mean the sense of being uh, nervous on stage by yourself? Is that what you're talking about? Well, there's that, but also just that the content of my songs is, you know, rather melancholy and sad and draws upon either personal experience or other sort of sorrowful and dark topics. You know, so when you invoke that in, in front of an audience, the sort of like the mind of the room can shift, like people can be really into it, or all of a sudden people can be like in a little bit, bit more of a sorrowful place or, you know, it's just and as a solo performer, I think being up on stage and not maybe playing with a band as like more of a buffer or... <laughs> a way to enhance the show it just it just feels very vulnerable yeah i see what you mean i i, I yeah i thought that's what you meant and i guess vulnerable is definitely uh, totally understandable yeah so here you are you're in your early 20s and you are playing around with doing solo stuff and you're still playing with bands but you in 2004 you moved to france so this is a year or two out of out of uh santa cruz right yeah and you moved to France and you go to French language school in Bordeaux. Yeah. This is a life-changing decision. Had you already taken French and um, you decided to study intensive French. I know you and your friend Caitlin are both Europhiles. Mm -hmm. I am too. Speaking a second language has been a, a life changer for me. I speak German. Mm -hmm. I used to speak French. Tell us about this year or more than that. And how it did alter things for you, both as a performer and otherwise. When I was living in Bordeaux, I was good friends with a lot of really amazing musicians. And there was a really incredibly thriving music scene there at the time. Bordeaux was very much known for sort of more of its rock music scene. But there were some really incredible musicians 
um, many of whom still live there. The French language school was affiliated with the public university there. So I actually went to school, I was there for about six months with a bunch of other foreign students, some of whom were students from California who were part of the UC system, but you know, I had already graduated. I studied French there. I had started learning French in high school. Um, and then I had done an exchange with a family in the north of France a few times. So a, another student came and stayed with me and my parents in Fort Bragg. And then I went there um, a couple of times. So I had had, you know, exposure to, to the French language there for you know, a couple of years. I would say, and I think a lot of people <laughs> concur, is that I learned more from just hanging out with people and doing things, conversationally speaking, uh, all the expressions, all the ways of saying certain things in, in common everyday language or whatever is an en vogue way of saying something. So I, I really picked up a lot from just living there and hanging out with people. But of course, I, you know, I, I read some books in French and continued to study and write essays and that kind of thing. And it definitely helped a lot. A pretty rigorous program, actually. I remember sitting and we had classes that would be like two hours long and we'd have a 15 minute break and we'd have another two hour class in the same room. <laughs> That's a lot, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so our European yeah. education system is different. Have you written songs in French? I know you perform in, in France and Germany and multiple places yeah. in Europe, but have you written any songs in French or do you sing sometimes in French? No, no, I, I haven't written any songs in French or performed. It's interesting because in France, how do I say this? There's amongst my French friends, singing in French is really tricky. And a lot of people really love and revere like Les Chansons Françaises or like all the stuff also from the 60s and like Gainsbourg and all of those people. But so it's sort of like this very fragile approach. Like not a lot of my French friends even sing in French because they feel like it's pretty difficult to, to write and create a song that they feel good about in their own language. Um, I don't know. I, I mean, it's not that I wouldn't be open to it or even just learning a couple covers. Why not? <laughs> you do tour there a lot. And I, yeah. I thought it might be interesting to hear you uh, sing uh, some French songs too. Yeah. Uh, how often do you go to France on tour? Usually, you know, I know you were actually there when this COVID thing started, weren't you on tour yeah, then? And I was. So I've been working with a, a label in France for about 12 years now. Um, but it actually had no connection with my studies there or having lived there. The label found out about me through a radio show and contacted me directly. And then I was like, well, I actually lived in Bordeaux. And they were like, wow, that's crazy. That's where we're based. But anyway, yeah, I was on tour. Uh, I did a tour at the end of 2019 and then another one beginning of 2020 to support my new album. We finished on the 29th of February in Tübingen, wow. Germany. We actually went to the north of Italy in the in very early February, oh. you know, because the north of Italy was really where it was sort of the epicenter there in the beginning. So we were traveling through Spain, Portugal, all around France, we went to Belgium. I mean, we were kind of like probably swirling around the virus. <laughs> 
Mm. And when you're on tour, there's no way to avoid, you know, using a public restroom and that kind of thing. So there were a few people wearing masks in the airports and there were a few people wearing masks on the flight home. But then it was just about a week later. I flew back on March 3rd. It was about a week later that things really started to shift. Well, that's just sort of a parenthetical thing about your involvement. Uh, You know, you're touring just ahead of it. Getting back to your career now. So you come back to um, Northern California and presumably to San Francisco or to the Bay Area. Mm -hmm. I lived in San Francisco. Yeah. You're at the time performing solo and playing with fellow musicians. I think in 2007, you came out with your first album, which is, I guess, Dark Undercoat. Mm-hmm. Tell us about the buildup to that album and how you decided, I want to put out some tunes and so forth. And I know this has changed a lot. Like when I was younger and I'd buy an album, I would literally buy a vinyl album. Mm-hmm. By 2007, people are you know putting stuff out online. Tell us about that buildup to uh, get Dark Undercoat out. So I actually wrote a lot of those songs when I was staying up uh, with my parents after I moved back from France there was a brief period where I I lived in Mendocino before I moved to San Francisco so I actually wrote a lot of those songs in my childhood bedroom and I recorded a lot of them to four track tape as demos I have a four track I haven't used it a long time but I would sing into my SM58 into the four track (laughs) and you know play a little guitar and that kind of thing then I moved to San Francisco and I was like I just, I had a drive. At that point, I had played with enough people to know that I was either going to pursue having a band, which it's a lot of work to have a band, you know, you have to organize a lot of people, or I was going to just venture out on my own and have it be under my name. And I just decided to do that. That felt very clear to me at the time. And then I thought, you know, I'm going to move to San Francisco and I'm going to pursue music and I'm going to work a job and I'm going to see where this goes. And at the time, it was a really great time to be in San Francisco. There were tons of small to medium-sized clubs. There was a thriving music scene. Can't say the same for today, but (laughs) unfortunately, I've still a couple great venues left, but it's a tricky time, you know, and even leading up to this COVID time, it was so many places were shutting down. So it, it was a really great time. And there were still weekly papers. So local artists got, you know, coverage of shows and, you know, album release shows or album release parties that they were putting on. There was still a local music scene and, you know, there were a lot of bands. And so it was like I could play shows with a lot of different people. And I mean, it still is this way. You can contact some of those smaller, medium-sized clubs and say, hey, I want to put on a show. Here's my idea. And and a lot of places will still book you. But at the time, there were just a lot more. And there were a lot more local bands and local artists. When you got up to building up to uh, Dark Undercoat, um, it's got some songs, uh, Dagger and Bessie Smith, I listened to. I love the Bessie Smith line, I would die in heaven just to meet your soul. It's yeah. just an excellent line. <laughs> yeah. Um, tell us about that album. And because that's a big deal getting your first album out. Well, it's funny because <laughs> this was my thought at the time. I've been playing these shows and I never had an album to sell at the shows. And I thought, okay, I'm gonna put on this album and then I'll have a CD to sell at the shows. I mean, of course, I wanted to put the work out there, but I had no idea that it, you know, it would, it would start this whole other life, basically, 
for me as a songwriter. I just thought, okay, I'll have a CD and this will be, you know, a representation of my work that people can buy. Because a lot of people would be like, do you have an album or do you have something I can buy from you? And I didn't for a long time. Um, so it's just funny to think that that was my, <laughs> that was my idea. I mean, they, let's see, the Bessie Smith song. I said, oh, oh, Bessie Smith, why do you hang your head so low? I would die in heaven just to meet your soul. I had done a little bit of research about her life and her legacy, and I felt very touched by it and also very saddened by how she passed away. Yeah, I just felt felt very moved. I felt like she was a she's a really prominent figure in the history of blues music in America. So there, I feel like I kind of through studying about her life, I kind of got got to know her a little bit. And I just feel like not many people knew or know of her. And so writing a song about her felt appropriate. Since then, every couple of years or so, you've come out with a, a different uh, album. In 2009, you brought out Victorian America uh, that has a song of the same name. It's also a song called Red Serpent. Mm -hmm. Talk about those songs. Uh, Victorian America, I, I actually have a book called Women at Home in Victorian America. And so I was inspired by this book, which is sort of, you know, a historical account of what women's lives were like in Victorian America. And of course, you know, the Victorian times were not necessarily the most uh, freedom oriented for women. Red Serpent, that's, that song has a little, an interesting origin story. pamphlet and it was a, a a pamphlet put out by the Mormon church and it was an anti-abortion pamphlet <laughs> so I read the whole thing and of course I was in women's studies and gender studies and my, you know in fully immersed in my feminist studies and I read the thing and I thought god what a load of crap like this is just like this is the most oppressive bs to read a pamphlet that says oh a woman should not have an abortion even in incidents of incest and rape you've got to go like this is insane these are still very common beliefs um in religious circles so that red serpent was my response to reading that that's a powerful uh, response. I don't know that you would call yourself a feminist your whole life, although I think you probably have. You have <laughs> yeah. been you know, since you were a kid. Yeah. The kids that you sort of hung out with when I first met you, you were all kind of like powerful young women. I would have been surprised if you hadn't expressed yourself that way. In 2016, they moved in shadow altogether. 
seems to have been a very popular album. When mm -hmm. I went on your website and I saw, I mean, literally millions of hits on a lot of your songs, I was like, wow, I don't think I've had more than a couple of hundred hits on anything I've yeah. done. <laughs> it has um, another sort of feminist anthem, Womankind. Mm -hmm. It also has The Black Dove. It has a great cover, by the way. I like that cover a lot. It's really cool. You mentioned a little bit about feminism in your music. Talk about those songs and some of the messages that you're trying to get out. So while I was living in San Francisco, actually, you know, during the time that I released my first album, I also did a training to become, I was a domestic violence crisis counselor just on the phone. And then I ended up later when I was living in Santa Rosa, um, I had a, a sort of a brief stint of time where I was home for a while and I did a training to be um, a rape crisis counselor in Santa Rosa through an organization there. And so I'd had that along with my, you know, women and gender studies uh, background. I'd also had those experiences. And when you start to look at the world from that lens, it can be very disheartening seeing the epidemic of violence against women and just how pervasive it is and how, I mean, even with the Me Too movement, which is wonderful and totally not something I ever thought I'd see or, you know, that would happen in my lifetime. It's still pretty not spoken about what an epidemic it is, violence against women, rape culture, misogyny, that kind of thing. So I wrote that song, Womankind, but actually came out literally right before the Me Too movement. it speaks from a time that happened right before that where things were even more kind of dampened down in regard to experiences of violence and assault. Do you have a lot of fans and journalists ask you about your feminist inspirations and so forth or is it just something you just do and figure that's just part of who I am? In the beginning when I first released my first record I was in Rolling Stone a couple times with that yeah. record and then it sort of provoked a couple other, you know, journalists to reach out to me. And um, I had a couple interviews and I remember one of them asking me, so are you a feminist? This was back in 2007. And he meant it in a really derogatory way, like he was going to use it against me, <laughs> which I don't necessarily think that 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 would happen today. People have asked about it and you know, obviously the word feminist and feminism is kind of charged language because there are so many different definitions of feminism and so many different, even within feminist circles. But, you know, there's sort of the predominant uh, idea that if you look at it from a sort of a more derogatory way, it's like, you know, women are hate men and that kind of thing, which happened in the backlash in the 80s. 
So I don't necessarily directly talk about it or bring it up on my own, but if asked about it, I generally fully embrace feminist ideas and being labeled a feminist. Yeah. Good. That's great. Yeah. I would have thought that, and I'm glad to hear you say that. Yeah. Uh, my wife also worked at uh, Project Sanctuary here mm-hmm. in as a domestic violence counselor as well. So. Oh, wonderful. I know a lot of you folks who have worked in that in that field, so I salute that. That's great. There's a lot of other songs that I've liked. I wanted to ask you about Hole in the Middle. Yeah. Um, it's a great song. It's kind of, uh, it's got a kind of powerful drum and bass kind of thing. It's- and you know I'm evil now And you shout it loud and proud Saying I'm born in the USA And you know Shout it loud and proud Singing born in the USA There's a great line. Everybody's got a hole in the middle. Everybody's got to dance with the devil. I love that. I imagine what it might mean or curious. We all have this place uh, in, within ourselves. It's kind of not exposed in this sense, but kind of like we've got this kind of other place in us. Tell us about Hole in the Middle. I wrote that song during the Bush era. You know, I don't think I finished the song, but I wrote most of it. And so that was very much an anti-imperialist song. Because obviously we're all dealing with the Iraq war and the atrocities of the Bush administration. So it comes from that. And then, of course, I sort of reference a little bit of like a Bruce Springsteen Americana vibe um, with the Born in the USA element of the song uh, I don't know if I regret that or not but <laughs> but, um, but yeah so that's where that song comes from it's a good song it's a little bit of an earworm it's kind of sticks in there yeah in a way and I like that I mean I to me an earworm is not a bad thing unless it's a really crummy song and this is uh. not a really, this is a good song so <laughs> in a good way your most recent album is Imminent Fire and I believe that just came out about a year and a half ago mm-hmm. Some great song, including Washed Away. I noticed that Washed Away is is rather popular on your website. Washed Away. Modern industrial life. Take your soul and its fangs. We might as well be all washed away. If I don't have the song is essentially about um, the feeling of estrangement of living in this kind of capitalist era that we're living in, which I, I had been really busy these last couple years and sort of commuting a lot around the Bay Area for various things. And it was like I was watching the traffic just continue to build and build and build. And of course, everybody's moving out of San Francisco, moving out of the Bay Area, and the people who are able to afford to live in the Bay Area are not necessarily the people who, well, they may live and work there, but a lot of people work in the city who live elsewhere, right? So there are like all these people flocking into work and then having to leave after work. And it was just the climate sort of existential, emotional, social climate of the Bay Area, which is ramping up and up and up to people being very hostile. Clearly, there's just like tremendous wealth and economic inequality, increasing homelessness, 
And I just was looking around going like, what a mess. The Bay Area is just, it, it, it had become just like really inhospitable in my opinion. Um, and just transformed so drastically, even within just like a five-year period. And so I was feeling like everybody's rushing around trying to earn money and nobody has like time to spend in nature or, you know, connect with the things that make us feel connected, that make us feel connected to the earth, connected to each other, uh, you know, the spirit of life. Like I just sort of kept seeing and I was experiencing the sense of estrangement myself. And to me, it seems strikingly different than any other time I had experienced in living in the Bay Area. So that's what Washed Away is about. If you don't seize what's important to you and you don't sort of push up against these things that are sucking all your time and your energy and your mind and your life, and that's technology, that's like you know, means of transportation. It's all different kinds of things. It seemed like this form of capitalism has just been on hyper mode. Um, and obviously that's shifted since the pandemic, but. I think that comes through. These are questions we're all asking ourselves in the last, well, I wouldn't say all, but it's things I come up with. I, yeah. I do uh, a lot of climate talks mm -hmm. around and do presentations and the like. And, you know, some of the questions I come up with is I wonder if, um, capitalism can get along with the planet you know i wonder yeah. if the, you know that the constant need for resources and stuff if that'll work and obviously you've been thinking about it in other ways and the talk that we had with your old buddy caitlin that comes up in in as some of the mm -hmm. themes with her as well so it's an interesting thing you can't help if you're a thinking artist i think you can't help but wonder about it i just did two interviews with two members of the San Francisco Mime Troupe, mm -hmm. Michael Gene Sullivan, who's the writer in residence and one of the actor directors, and his wife, Valina Brown, who is a director and an actor with the group. And they talk about some of the same things. So it's interesting, you know, if you're an artist, uh, you can't help but consider these things. And I think you're doing a good job that way. Yeah, and climate change was definitely a huge thing that informed my record. I don't necessarily think that my record, putting it out there is going to combat climate change necessarily. But there's this wonderful, um, you know, she's an author, scholar, and earth activist. Her name's Starhawk. And I used some of um, this this concepts that she talks about in uh, in her book Dreaming the Dark, which is this contrast of this concept of imminence and this concept of estrangement, and that you know in in modern times we are, our world is very much generated by this feeling of estrangement that there's always things being recreated power dynamics you know everyday living structures that that sever us from each other and sever us from ourselves. And that climate change is a huge part of that and a huge result of that. And, you know, obviously also, you know, if you stay current with the news, you know, your news source is something that's giving you factual scientific evidence about climate change. And you hear things like, wow, they did a study in some of the most remote parts of the world and found that there were plastic particulates raining down. Mm -hmm. I mean, what do you do with that information? It just feels like the most dystopic thing you could hear, right? You know, or trash islands happening in the middle of the ocean. And, and then you go to eat some food and then you realize like, oh, everything is encased in plastic. <laughs> like. 
it's it feels like a war crime now to do takeaways. Yeah. Because you never know how much stuff it's going to be wrapped in. Politics continues to inform your music, and it's evident in a lot of different ways, uh, both feminism and uh, environmentalism and just generic politics, economics and so forth. You've done a lot of touring. A lot of your work has been in Europe, which I think is way cool. When I talked to Caitlin, she said she's seen you perform in Paris and in Berlin, uh, which is kind of cool. And it makes me proud of you, Emily. (laughs) I'm, I'm a Europhile too, and I've worked a lot there. You've played in France, Germany, Belgium, the Netherlands, Spain, Italy, UK, Poland, Scandinavia. Tell us a little bit about some of your favorite places to play in Europe. Oh, uh, no, I'm glad you asked because it's, I very much have lived sort of a double life because <laughs> I have a pretty thriving career over there, um, but it's not necessarily visible from here. Um, and then when I'm on tour, I'm not necessarily documenting everything. Uh, I, you know, I try and take a couple pictures here and there, but um I would say some of my favorite places to play are, of course, France and then Germany. I actually really, really have loved playing in Germany. Those are the two places, and and Belgium. I'd say those are the three countries I've played in the most in Western Europe. And then the Netherlands, UK, Spain, Italy. I feel like, well, French audiences, I feel like really, there's something cultural about being able to sit with an intimacy and also like more sorrowful music that I don't necessarily see here as much. And maybe that's just California. I haven't, I've toured the States a bit, but not nearly as much as I've toured in Europe. And I know that there are, you know, different cultural temperaments within the US too. But you know, my experience for the most part has been playing in California where people generally tend to like to talk (laughs) over quiet, intimate music. But yeah, and German audiences are also very kind and respectful. And then there's always the, you know, the chance that you'll get a very honest opinion from somebody at the merch table. Yeah, that's great. (laughs) In Germany. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I noticed the word for encore in German is Zugabe. Uh, You often hear it at the end, Zugabe, Zugabe. You think, I earned an encore? (sighs) It it always surprises me. (laughs) So, I mean, it, it is kind of, they're very appreciative. They're uh, surprisingly appreciative audiences that way. So is there any particular gig that you say, now nah, that was my favorite gig ever? Oh, gosh. There was this one tour I did for that album, Victorian America, where I played with six mm-hmm. people on stage. And I would say we had a handful of shows during that tour. Um, I toured with that band twice, end of 2009 and into 2010, I believe. There were handfuls of, sh- of shows on that tour. I mean, it feels really nice to be able to play a nice big like theater venue, you know, with all the amazing lights and everything with a big band. We definitely got a lot of encores when I played with that band. So we had like violin, cello, bass, drums, pedal steel, and electric guitar. Yeah, that is so, a big band. That's great. Yeah. Well, what's it like with the pedal steel? Uh, well, it's been years since I've had pedal steel in my band, but... Um, I mean, I was always really appreciative of the sound that, you know, pedal steel can add. It's just so it's this signature American, you know, sort of Americana country sound. Yeah. Um, but it can also, you know, add, my music has a lot of space as it is relatively spare. Pedal steel can really fill in a lot of that space. And, and you know, it's also kind of like a, 
a very emotive instrument. You yourself play piano, guitar, and then you also have worked with other musicians on a regular basis. You mentioned percussionist Nick Ott. I wonder if you, if there, yeah. tell us about some of the other musicians you've worked with. Well, Nick, Nick is also my, my partner. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> yeah, he is uh, currently a librarian at the San Francisco Public Library. So he wasn't able to come on tour with me these last two tours. But the last two tours I did, I had my friend John Courage, who lives up in Santa Rosa, and Dan Ford, who lives in Petaluma. They accompanied me. And so we played as a trio and that was really wonderful. And I worked with another musician here um, who played in my band on the last album. And his name is Anton Patzner and he's an, just an amazing uh, producer, arranger, violinist. Um, and so I worked with him actually, he and I co-produced my last album. It's been a while, but I worked with a variety of different string players. And then, like I said, electric guitar and pedal steel. And there was a group of musicians up in from Santa Rosa that I worked with a while ago. It's always important to make sure, you know, behind every solo artist, there's usually quite a few other people involved. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I'm so eternally grateful for, you know, and as I'm getting older, I'm like, gosh, I'm really glad I made those records when I did because they mark us. I, I mean, I'm sure you can, you know, you feel this way as a as an artist, you know, comedian yourself, it's like, you're just grateful that you seize the moment and you did it when you did, because you really can't go back. You can't go back and you can't do a bunch of things you wanted to do all at once. That's a good thing. Yeah, exactly. Not only a marker of sort of that time period in my life, but also just the social fabric of our world and you know, you mentioned in your bio that you've been studying the Feldenkrais method. I think I'm pronouncing it right. And at this com- sort of a combination of relaxing and exercising, and you've actually gotten into it. Tell us a little bit about this and has it helped you with your music? About five years ago, I, like I mentioned before, I had always thought, well, I'd probably go into a career where I'd have to go to, I'd go to graduate school and that kind of thing. And then I ended up pursuing music and I thought, you know, it'd be nice to have some to do something else as well. Even if I don't pursue it a hundred percent immediately, like it'd be nice to just dive in and learn something else. And I had been taking these embodiment and expression classes at San Francisco Community Music Center for a couple of years. And there was a woman there who was trained in the Feldenkrais method. And so we did a bit of Feldenkrais in her class. And I had expressed to her that I was interested in in studying some kind of somatic modality that not only could help me as an artist and a musician and somebody who tours, because it's pretty hard on you, as you know, you know, traveling. And she said, well, why don't, she suggested, you know, she said Feldenkrais is really popular. And I'd had a lot of positive experiences doing some of the lessons in her class. So I decided to do a training in it. And it worked with my schedule too, because the training wasn't necessarily year round. It just met about four times a year for a short period of time. And so I, yeah, I've been studying that. And a little bit about the method is it was created by a man named Moshe Feldenkrais, and he was an engineer physicist, as well as a martial artist. He developed the method by studying a very autodidactic person, studied a lot of different disciplines in sort of from hypnosis, psychology, to martial arts, and then also more the more hard sciences. 
So it's, it's very scientifically based, but it also really uh, grasps onto this, what they call an organic learning style, which is how all of us learn how to move when we're very young, that we sort of have this sort of built in innate ability to learn. And so it's, the method is very much about getting close to that part of yourself. Anyway, it's very vast and I could talk about it for <laughs> a long time, but anyway, it has helped me as a musician and, and as an artist. And it's also something that I can continue to learn, I think for the rest of my life. So grateful for that. It's always great to find something that helps you relax when you're on tour. And it's a wonderful thing because you're going from place to place. I remember when I used to tour as a comedian, sometimes we do a show and we'd have 200 miles of driving to do. And so we'd get up at eight and I would drive till noon and then Tracy would drive for a while. And then we'd get there, we'd check, do the sound check and all that stuff. And then you'd be on stage at eight o'clock and so on. The same thing would continue. So, so you know, yeah. Yes, is, is really nice. And the Feldenkrais so. method is used uh, a lot with actors. And there are a couple of trainers actually in the North American Guild that were actors originally. So do you have any, uh, now, of course, we're dealing with COVID. Do you have any hoped for tours coming up or stuff that you're putting on hold until you can get back to it? So there are, uh, there was, I was supposed to tour in the fall and I was, I had some dates scheduled for February, but <laughs> everything got canceled. So I'm working on a new album and mm -hmm. I am going to probably go back to Europe um, and tour in February, March of next year. So a new album working on uh, some songs right now and hopefully be back to Europe by the beginning of next year. Yeah. So that's great, Emily. So it's been great to talk with you, Emily. Uh, Likewise. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's wonderful. And it's great to see you again. You know, you look so much, you just look like a little bit older than you when you were. Yeah. <laughs> Why, thanks. Yeah. You're, you're more, you know, older and more sophisticated, but still, you know, dazzling. But it's great. So it's my pleasure to have you on Snap Sessions, Emily Jane White. And we invite people to have a chance to listen to your music. There's a variety of albums out there. So uh, enjoy some Emily Jane White music. Thank you.
Thanks to our artist of the show, folk singer-songwriter Emily Jane White. Our production team includes tech meister Marshall Brown, jack-of-all-trades Ken Krause, writer-interviewer Doug Nunn, and our logo designer Daniel Stieglitz. Don't be an airhead. Get out there and do something creative. Dabble in something that inspires you. Read something challenging. Expand your perspective. Our aim is to give you an international outlook on the arts and a critical look at world politics. Salute the power of creativity and foster international solidarity. Make Mother Earth great again. Thanks for listening to Snap Sessions. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to our podcast at patreon.com forward slash snap sessions. We depend on the support of listeners like you to cover our monthly podcast and transcription service costs. Please join us as a Snap Session supporter. We have support levels from Little Snapper to Snappus Maximus. Thanks to all of our generous supporters.